the Endurance Asia podcast. Yo, pick your red up because things ain't that bad. Maybe you should switch the target that you're aiming at. Believe perfection is a beast that they'll never catch. So never waste another day because life moves so fast. And a dream without pursuing, yo, they never last. Another shadow of regret I try to never cast. And always tell a truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Welcome to episode 71 of the Endurance Asia podcast. And this week we are joined by none other than Vincere Zing, who has recently come back from the Karakoram in Pakistan, having become the very first Singaporean and Southeast Asian woman, along with PS Sim, to have summited K2, the Savage Mountain. And that is not all she's been up to this year because earlier in the uh, climbing season, she was out in the Himalaya. She summited Everest and immediately summited Lhotse to also become the very first woman to to climb both mountains in one in, in the same push. Uh, just an incredible story. It didn't come out of no out of any out of thin air. She has been preparing for this for the past six seven years, and uh, and just an an incredible performance in the high altitude mountains, and an incredible story to share. Also catch up with Rick Stockfish at the uh, at the at the end of the podcast to discuss what's happening in the trail running scene right now. It's big week with UTMB. Uh, we're like in the middle of watching OC, uh, OCC and Triple C, and you've got UTMB coming this weekend. So I hope everyone enjoys it. There's some amazing performances happening from Asian-based athletes, and we will cover those again soon. So with that, here we have Vincere Zing. Tell the truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Hey, Vincere Zeng, welcome on to the Endurance Asia podcast. Thank you so much for, for coming to join us. Hey, Scott, thank you for having me. Very nice to be here. Yeah, and it's you're uh, coming to join us off the back of what has been a crazy three or four months, right? I think uh, you're, you've just become the first Southeast Asian female, first Singaporean female to Summit K2, along with PS Sim, a previous podcast guest. And that's off the back of earlier in the year doing both Everest and Lotsi. Uh, what an incredible year. Like, how are you, how are you feeling now? Um, I'm feeling like really thrilled that I could actually complete what the target I set for myself as well as just being grateful that I'm back safe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's always got to be the, the primary goal, isn't it? To, to, to get back and to get home safe. But, but yeah, I'd love to understand and share with the audience a bit more about your background. Uh, I mean, I hadn't really heard of you too much before. I think I'd heard of you through the trail running community, but, um, but yeah, would love to sort of understand you're, you're Singaporean now, but you're originally from, from China. Do you want to share about a bit about your upbringing? Yeah. So I, I, um, I grew up in uh, Sichuan province in China. Um, I moved to Singapore when I was 17, so I came here for university and um, stayed in Singapore since then and got my uh, citizenship maybe two or three years ago. Um, matter of fact, I did my first voting today. Oh, you did? Yeah, first time. <laughs> Enjoyed my right. Um, <laughs> yeah, when I was growing up, I was not just into sports at all, so I never thought of like climbing mountains or 
not mentioning Clive, the highest mountains in the world. So it has been a lot of change for me. I think Singapore has shaped me a lot. And I always identify my sort of mountaineering or outdoor identity with Singapore and Southeast Asia because I basically start, started everything from here. Yeah, interesting. However, though, Sichuan is, is, uh, is the renowned as being the climbing region of, of China, right? There's lots of, uh, lots of big mountains throughout the area. It's like a really big ice climbing area as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. There is a place called uh, Sigunyang. Yeah. which is just three hours drive from uh, the capital city of Sichuan, Chengdu. Yeah. So you basically, three hours, you go from like 500 meters to 3,000 meters and you can climb a 5,000 meter overnight. So it was very convenient. I mean, I've never been there before. Um, I came to Singapore, but I did go there, go back there to train um, after I started mountaineering. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, how did you uh, get into mountaineering in the first place? What was the? What? Yeah. What was? You mentioned that you sort of got into the outdoor in Singapore. Was that through trail running initially, or what was your sort of like first experience into into like outdoor? Uh, my. So when I started, I was uh, when I was in uni, I did a lot of backpacking. Right, I was more of a party girl, go backpacking and experience maybe food and and hang out with friends and all stuff. Uh, and uh, after I graduate, I decided to do a graduate trip in Africa. Okay. And I was basically teaching math and English in the primary school, and it just happened that the, the city I was teaching, the small town I was teaching. Uh, was right below the highest mountain in Africa, Kilimanjaro. Right. So, and I was, you know, after uni, you explore everything. Everything was so exciting. So I was like, oh, let me give it a try. And I just find myself love being in the nature and probably pretty okay with the attitude. So I decided to go a little bit higher and try what I can do. Yeah. And that totally just changed my life. Really? Because Kilimanjaro is, is four and a half, five thousand meters? Or? It's almost six thousand. It's five five thousand eight hundred something. Right, yeah. okay. So uh, yeah, a lot bigger than uh, any of the Southeast Asian mountains then. And so you and it's well known as being like a trekking peak. And it almost it seems like for a lot of people, Kilimanjaro is like the first step into into mountaineering. Like once you've sort of done that, it's like what next kind of thing. Yes. And yeah. was it like that for you after after summiting Kilimanjaro? You're like, right, okay, I've got the bug, like and signed up to to go and try another mountain. Yes, yeah, definitely. I um, after Kilimanjaro, I was like, oh, that was pretty much six thousand. So let me try a six thousand peak. So I went to a Mera peak. I think a year later. Okay. Um, so Mera Peak is in Nepal. It's yeah. also a trekking peak, pretty easy. Uh, I mean, not considered attitude, right? Um, and yeah. Yeah, because um, that's six and a half thousand. Yeah, million. pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Um, so for me, I didn't have enough training at that time. I didn't have even have my, my equipment. I was really just going there, try it out. And it was quite tough. I, submit, I submitted. But it was quite tough for me at the end. I was like really tired, but that still triggered me. I was like, oh, I could do, I could do six thousand peak, and then I decided to sign up for like Aconcagua, and then I was like, let me just try higher and higher. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think Mira Peaks are, are just stunning in the way that you fly into Lukla as well, but then 
the summit, you actually have just this incredible view of all of the eight. Th- well, not all yeah, of the. All of there, the right? Yeah, you've been there, right? Yeah, yeah. But you've got like uh, Manaslu in the front, and then you've got like Lotsi Everest. You can see Choya way out in the back. You, it's it's uh, you've got them all in front of you. So yeah, we had a really nice day summit on the summit day, and we were just like I was too tired, so I was like taking a rest every two or three steps, and sometimes I sit there and look and. My guide was telling me, oh, these are all like 8,000 meter peaks over there. And I had no concept of it. You know, yeah. I've never thought about like, I, have, I didn't think of, think of it yet. Right. So, I, but, so, but then having seen all of those mountains, do you think that kind of sowed the seed with you of like, okay, I need to get back one day and take on one of those big mountains? Or are you not even considered at that point? I haven't, I haven't considered, but it was really a pretty... Um, clear image still in my mind today that I saw all these mountains and it was it was really incredible yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so so then coming off Mira Peak you you signed up for Aconcagua which is in Argentina right yes that's uh, the highest for South America yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and what year would this have been what year were you uh so Mira Peak so uh, Kilimanjaro was 2015 okay um, Mera was 2017 I think um, and End of 2017, um, Aconcagua. So it was the same year you went to you went and attempted Aconcagua. So yeah. obviously, part being the highest in South America, part of the seven summits as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, quite a challenging place to get to from Singapore as well. It's like oh yeah, of, it was far. It's one of the most remote and areas. Yeah. Yeah, and for me at that time, I only been working for like a year plus or so, and it was quite expensive for me as well. I'm sure. Um, so yeah, but then I actually screwed up. I didn't submit that time. Um, I came down during the summit a few hundred meters above the, I think it was Camp 3. Yeah. Yeah, so I turned back um, and I was really disappointed. But that was probably also the time that gave me a really good reflection and started to really take it seriously. Yeah, what, yeah. what was your reflection? Because I can imagine having paid so much to go there as well and then not being able to summit. What was the... Yeah, as you reflected after, what did it? Yeah, what did it drive in you? I think I was just too reckless and uh, didn't have sufficient training, didn't have sufficient preparation, didn't know my body well enough. I wasn't like even rounding at that time. I was. I don't know. I kind of just used my willpower to say, oh, maybe I can do this. Then I try next, and maybe I just I can just do it. It's kind of based on luck. Yeah. I would say, um, but you weren't doing any specific training leading up to the uh, the expedition. You weren't. No, uh, not at all. I didn't. I only started to buy my gear. Like I started to get proper gear. Maybe, yeah. I didn't. I didn't even start. I started training like running to like a month before Aconcagua. Right. That's that was the first time I actually get into running. Yeah. Um, but after Aconcagua, I started to um, really properly get into like running and trail running and the tra- training schedule. Yeah. And did you did you get a coach or anything, or did you? But you just knew that you were going to need to improve your overall fitness and endurance for for any future summit attempts. Yeah. Um, I. So I did like small hikes. Um, that's what I've been doing for, for quite some time. Um, but then I realized it's not, it was not enough. I didn't really have any coach, but I started to read about something. And I think it just came very naturally for me that Singapore, Southeast Asia, 
um, on the sea, at the sea level, it's not really a place to do big climbs. So I think I was thinking like maybe trail running would be, you know, one of the best way to train for for mountaineering. So that's how I got into trail running. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what what did you take on after Aconcagua then? Which what was your what was your next? So Aconcagua is 6,900 something. Okay, yeah. A little bit less than 7,000. So I was quite pissed off with myself and I was like, since I could not do a, like almost 7,000 meter peak, I might as well go for a 7,000 meter peak. Some some sort of like proving to myself. Um, so I signed up for Lelin Peak in Kyrgyzstan, okay. which is uh, 7,134 meters um, okay. the, the year after Aconcagua, right. so it's 2018. In Kyrgyzstan, mm. like, I I know roughly where the stands on on the map, <laughs> but it's not like I wouldn't be a, I wouldn't be able to like without the names on it pinpoint it. What made you decide to to go to Kurdistan? Was it just literally I'm looking at all the seven thousand meter peaks? Which one can I try? Or yeah, pretty much because Kurg- like cause you basically talk with a lot of mountaineers during all these expeditions, and yeah. you know people will recommend or tell you about different things, and I think I mean some people would move from Aconcagua directly to Everest if they feel like very good um but there was just someone telling me about Kyrgyzstan, like there this seven thousand meter peak in kyrgyzstan which is also sort of a tracking peak yeah um a little bit more challenging but definitely a lot of people use that to train for everest sure so something like not too technical but had mm. higher altitude that you were yeah. looking for yeah, yeah. and uh, how did that go um so i actually put a lot of effort in training proper training during that time so i i went for like rinjani i went for mantra um, so all these so very tough oh, running, oh, running ultras. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. all these like so-called tough races. Yeah. Um, and learning for me was actually really good. I think I was like faster than average for the summit day. I was I was feeling really strong. Um, and summit rate for learning was actually not high. Every year it was like thirty percent. Okay. At, at least back then when there was no Sherpa, I think I heard like recent years Sherpas are going there. Yeah. Um, but back the time that we were there, it was sort of like, it trained us really well in terms of being independent in climbing. So we only have, I had a Russian guy together with a Russian police as my teammate. Right. And everything we need to do, I set up a tent ourselves, cook for ourselves, carrying our loads and blah, blah, blah. So everything we need to do ourselves, the guy was only there to guide. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that gave me a really good experience to be independent. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean that's such a good thing to do. I mean, one of the one of the biggest challenges with climbing these big mountains is to be able to do a lot of the basic stuff, which at sea level, putting on your crampons, getting in and out of tents, boiling your water, like would be really easy. But once you start doing it, once you're over 6,000 meters, it becomes really hard. Every single movement is just a real challenge, right? So yeah, it feels like super slow. Like you can spend your whole day just probably putting on your crampons or yeah. putting on your boots. I feel like every minute it's like passed by so fast. I was like sitting there like gradually cooking and it can take me like two hours to cook and eat and everything, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and normally, and like at Everest, you would have, Sherpas would be doing a lot of that for you, right? In terms of all of the cooking, heating up water and everything, even once you're on the mountain, obviously at base camp, they would have a mess tent and prepare for you. But as you're like climbing up to the other camps, the Sherpas would be helping you out on a lot of that stuff as well. Yeah, I, I mean, Everest nowadays, you call, you call that luxurious tour, like luxurious high attitude tour. Yeah. Right. It's, I mean, I would say 
I would agree with that. To be honest, they do everything for you. Have a yeah. pretty nice tent in the base camp. You can actually sleep on a really big mattress, yeah. and not any not even a sleeping mat. Um, and you have nice food cooked. Um, even on high camps, although the food might not be as good, um, but in efforts nowadays, even Camp Two, which is at six thousand five hundred meters, they actually have chef and they have proper food for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's really, it's really coming. So in. It's for tr in training, it's so important to do it without that because there will come a point when you're on a mountain where you haven't got that support and you need to look after yourself, right? So I'm sure that that was, yeah, that was a really good, uh, a, a good summit to do and and with, you didn't have any problems in the in, in the Kyrgyzstan s summit one you you did your whole team your guide and also the Russian police my guide. Russian police teammate got really drunk after the rotation <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, he literally he was like he was quite fit right but then after the rotation he he was so happy that he started to drink and you know Russia liked to drink and he was on the vodka he, he was really on the vodka he even had the like he had that during his summit day that he had to turn back at probably 6,400 meters. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They drink a lot. I mean, you see it with um, like a lot of like Nim's documentary and like him partying in between. And I just think, what are they doing? Like why? I mean, obviously having fun and having, mm -hmm. having a good vibe within your team is very mm -hmm. important. But still, you don't want to be climbing with a hangover. Like, that's just the worst thing to do. You get a headache at altitude anyway. Add to that, like, a hangover. That seems a crazy idea. Yeah. Um, I mean, for clients, normally they don't advise you to drink. But, yeah. like, we actually, we still drink. Yeah. We, we, like, we do our rotation all the way to 7,000 meters. And then we came back. And that's the time where you can start drinking. Okay. Yeah, okay. so, and the Sherpas, I mean, they have, like, oxygen level of 99, so <laughs> I think yeah. they can pretty much drink almost all the time. Yeah, it makes yeah. no difference to them. Yeah. So after um, summiting the mountain in, in, in Kyrgyzstan, what what was the, and that was in, like, 2018 or yeah, so? Yeah, that was 2018. That was the point when I when I thought I could do Everest. Right, yeah. okay, okay. Because there, there was... Um, there's quite a few Singaporean ladies that have summited before as well. I mean, you had the sort of Ever the first Everest, Everest summiting team with Joanne Sue, and um, and then you had like PS who was who you were on with K2. Did you speak to many of these people and get advice from them around Everest, or were you yeah where were you getting um, yeah getting your advice and inspiration from for start thinking about the higher altitude mountains? Um, I didn't really know them. At the beginning, I mean, even now, I I didn't really talk to I didn't I never talked to Joanne. Um, I knew PS from the trail running community. Yeah. Um, my mountaineering was pretty much the experience from while I climbing all around the world. I met a lot of guides and a lot of other people who have done Everest. Yeah. So I just picked it up from them. Um, and then um, 2020, I wanted to um, do Everest. Um, it was cancelled be because of COVID, but 2019, I spent quite some time in China as well. I mean, it's naturally the closest place that I, I could go and train. Yeah. Um, so I went back to China. That's the time when I also got a lot of training in Sichuan, where I really know like the places I was born. And there was a lot of mountain and I did a lot of things around that. 
um, gradually. I yeah, so I, I knew like how I need to train, what I need to train, and all that. Yeah, and so were you like just staying at your parents then, and just going and doing a few of the mountains around the Sichuan area? Was that like at weekends, or what was? How were you taking on the the mountains there? Were you like just finding a local guide that was taking you up? Yes, yes. Um, so I pretty much sometimes it's a long weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I will take leave depending on which kind of mountain I was doing. Um, yeah, it's always nice that I go go back home and you know have meal with my parents and then I I go to Sichuan, like go to the mountain area and climb. Yeah. How do they feel about it? I, I, you're, you're like a only daughter as well. Have you got any brothers and sisters? Or? Uh, yeah, my parents are divorced, but only daughter for both of them. Okay. Um, my mom was actually really pissed off with me for a long time because she saw like I came down from Mera Peak, my face were so sunburned that the skin was peeled off. Yeah. Um, and she's at some point she saw that photo. And she was, you know, she's quite traditional, so she thought I should be a pretty girl, you know, um, living a comfortable life. Why would I, you know, go to mountains and do stuff like that to myself and to my body? So yeah. she, for two years, we were kind of in the Cold War. Yeah, oh, really, <laughs> she didn't want you doing it. But, um, but then without, I take it with that when you couldn't do Everest in 2020, you went and spent some chi- time with your, with your parents in China uh, that... Did you go move back there for a bit? So I went back to see my grandma because she was uh, not feeling well in 2020. Just I think just be, just during COVID hit, um, and then uh, yeah. So and somehow I also couldn't come back for a bit. Yeah. And also I think China was more open during that time. Yeah. So I did quite a number of training um, in the mountainous area, and I started to do quite a number of this kind of speed ascent. Right. Yeah, so like you do a five or six thousand peak without stopping anywhere. So straight from base camp. You would acclimatize first or just go straight? Uh, five thousand meter, no, no acclimatization. Yeah. And yeah. six thousand meter, a little bit, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so had you actually signed up for Everest in 2020? Yes, I did. So I you actually already paid the deposit. Ah, okay. Yeah. So that got deferred to 2021? So, I mean, because we didn't know the situation, so the uh, company was actually really nice. They, they gave me back the deposit. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, so how come you then deferred? Like, because then it, obviously you didn't go back till 2023. So in those, did you climb any other mountains in between, um, yeah, 2019 and, 20, uh, and going back this season? Yeah, so uh, 2021, because it was during Delta, so it was yeah. also not a good time to, I mean, I just didn't feel it. And yeah. then in the autumn of 2021, I decided to try a, an easier 8,000 meter peak. Uh, it's Manaslu. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, 8,163 meters. Yeah. Um, and I was, yeah, so I somehow I just wanted to try it out. And I actually did a speed ascent as well from base camp all the way to the summit. Right, okay. Mm. Uh, and how far were you off the record of the speed descent for, um, for Manuslu? I was, I mean, I did 23 hours, which was quite slow for a yeah. speed ascent. Um, I think normally people would do that within 20 hours. Yeah. Um, but that was my first time doing speed ascent. I wasn't really like, 
I did. There was a lot of things I didn't know. I had problem with my oxygen, and there was some preparation stuff. Because for a speed lesson, it's like you put checkpoints. As each camp is kind of like your checkpoints. You need to have your nutrition, your supplements, your food, and everything prepared. So there was a lot. Of, a lot of things can go wrong. And in mountaineering, if minor thing goes wrong, everything can go wrong. Yeah. So yeah. So it was not as ideal as I wanted, but at least I did it. So I was quite happy with that. Yeah, no, that's amazing, and it is known as a like testing peak before going and and climbing Everest, right? But is it, I I always get confused between Manaslu and and is it Makalu? Oh yeah, Makalu is the fifth highest. Makalu and Makalu is the one where there's a, there's two summits, right? There's a south summit and a north summit, or like there's um. Oh, or is it Manaslu where there's two, there's actually two different... Man, Man, Manaslu has two, has, so there was so-called a real summit for Manaslu which was discovered in, well not discovered, was like officialized, let's put yep. that way, uh, in 2021. Okay. So the year I was climbing. So I actually went to the four summit. So yeah. I, like sometimes when people ask me how many 8,000 meters I have done, I actually sort of didn't really want to count Manaslu because that was not the real summit. Yeah. yeah. Um, the real summit was like, it's you like have to a climb few, down. Uh, I, like I've seen videos. There is a like there is a rage. So and then I mean sometimes they use the road to come like going going a traverse from down and up. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But that's during the year when we're climbing the four summit. Some people were going to the real summit, and that's the time when they really discovered that was the highest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, w- what is it considered now? Do you have to do the real summit to consider it to be? Uh, to be a true like if a true I want to do fourteen peaks, yeah, um, yes, I need to go back. They do have to do the you have yeah. to do the true summit, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean that's amazing to go to like sh- no non-stop 24, 23 hours from base camp to uh, um, to the summit of Manuslu. That's crazy. And what like what the base camp for Manuslu is it is it sort of sitting around five thousand meters? Four eight. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 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 See, so yeah, doing that. In, uh, and at what point would you be taking on oxygen? Uh, at what um, at what part like altitude within the mountains? Is it once you sort of get over seven thousand or? Uh, nowadays they always give you oxygen at camp two. Okay, which is at what? From Manasla, I can't even remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> six, six thousand some like. Below seven thousand, but yeah. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, after sort of getting back down safe off Manaslu, was it like right? Okay, I need to get back to. I uh, now need to sign up for Everest again. Oh, I wanted to do K two. You wanted to go straight into the K two. So yeah, like after the, all these years, right? Since I started to want to climb Everest, I've like talked to a lot of people climbing Everest, watch all the documentaries. At some point, I feel like I've done it. Yeah, yeah, I hear and you, yeah, yeah, and and since I could do a speed ascent for K, for from Manaslu, I feel like K two might be more of a challenge. Yeah, yeah. Plus, yeah. I knew there was no Southeast Asian female has climbed K two before, so I was kind of just like, let me try something new. Yeah. yeah. So, so why did you so did you sign up for K two at first then for the uh, before you signed up for Everest for this year? I pretty much decided I, w- I was gonna do both, but then I mean Everest was. I, Everest was gonna be earlier in the in a year, yeah, so I signed up for Everest first. Yeah, uh, but I was pretty sure I was gonna do K two, so I took a four months off anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and yeah, what? Tell us about like the team that you joined and how you uh, yeah for for Everest and how you decided to yeah who you decided to to climb with. So I went with eight K expedition. Um, yeah. 
it's a pretty new company. Uh, the first time they operate was when I climbed Manaslu, and I somehow got introduced by a Singaporean mountaineer as well, and by my friend in China as well. Um, and also when I was in China climbing in 2020, I knew some Chinese team. Uh, yeah. One thing important for me, mountaineering was really the food. And, yeah. <laughs> and I heard that, like with Chinese, Chinese team, you actually have Sichuan food. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. sure. So in, in Nepal, they, because they have so many Chinese clients and Chinese is kind of the, the, nowadays it's one of the, not one of probably the biggest yeah. like climbing client community. Yeah. So in the, in the Sherpa expedition company, they actually send the chef to learn Chinese food. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so I... Yeah, so, so you have spicy mm-hmm. Sichuan food up yes, on the Yes, yes, they have douban, they have douban, they have lao gamma, they have a lot of, like, they even have a hot pot sauce, and they even bought a hot pot. Wow, amazing. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so I decided to sign up with the Chinese team with AK. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that, that worked out for me very nicely for Everest because they, have a, they had a big team and I could also do some sort of translation job to get a little bit discount. Right, okay, so you were working a little bit on the mountain for them as well. Yeah, pretty much. So I was basically sort of the liaison officer between, not officer, but you know, the, the, the near li- liaison person for the Sherpa and the Chinese team. Got you. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how big was the team? What was the total um, amount of people climbing? Uh, I think for 8K in total for Everest this year, they had like 70 clients. That's 70 clients. And Chinese were, Chinese were like 18. Okay. Yeah. And then, sorry, eight, what was the rest of the, um, where else was everyone else from on the, on the team? They had a Russian team, they had a Ukrainian team, they had an Indian team, and then... For AK did. Yeah, yeah for yeah. AK. And then they had an uh, international team, I think. Yeah. Right, okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because there was around like 400-odd permits for Everest this year. Was it 450 or something? Almost or five, I think. Fi- f- uh, yeah, yeah. Almost yeah. 500. So that's a lot. Of, I think that's like the most ever they've had on the mountain. Did it feel busy when you got there? Oh, yeah. It was massive. Um, because plus Sherpa and everyone, there are, pr- there are probably a little bit less than 2,000 people in the base camp. Um, it was big. Um, and then you've got all the people that are trekking to EBC as yeah, well, Yeah, exactly. Right? And you, the helicopters are really busy as well. You, they keep telling, taking people in and out, taking like stuff in and out, uh, yeah. all the food, and a lot of things are actually carried by the helicopter nowadays. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was quite busy. But luckily, the year, this year, the window for Everest was actually pretty good. So the yeah. summit day were like for half, an, half a month. Yeah. So the summit day wasn't so busy. Yeah, which is obviously is really good to be able to avoid like huge bottlenecks on um, if there's so many opportunities for summit days. Right? Yeah, it was it was it was like it was not too bad. Yeah, how yeah. was the acclimatization period? <sighs> Everest was tough in a way that everybody got sick. I heard like I I was told this year it was even worse than 2021 with Delta, so. When we just got to Everest, we got influenza. Yeah. Um, and there were there were like three days during the tracking period that we had fever and could not move. So we actually st- stopped somewhere. It, it was not even the place we should be. It was just a launch place. But yeah. then we couldn't move anymore. So I was staying there for three days. And then I picked up and went back to the base camp. Um, and then after that, after I recovered from influenza, we did rotation. Luckily, came down feeling not well again, and I got COVID positive. Oh, shit. <laughs> so, yeah, so the whole Everest for me was like, 
in the mountains, coming back, recover, in the mountains, coming back, recover. So even for the summit push, I was, um, I, I actually pretty much got negative two or three days before the summit push. How were you feeling by that point? Because the other thing is when you get sick in the high altitude mountain, you get a cough and it's like, you, uh, you hear the people with a dry cough? A lot of times we, ca we, we can't even talk. We couldn't yeah. even talk, like a lot of times, how oh, are you? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, that's really tough. Yeah. Um, did the, at any point did you think that your summit push was going to be in jeopardy because of the illness? Not really. You know, hu human mind works very magically. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, this year Killian was there. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we 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 are all from the trail running community, and we knew that last year Killian actually did his UTMB with COVID positive. Yeah. And he actually broke the record. Yeah. Are those nineteen <laughs> hours something sub twenty? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And this year we actually saw him in the mountains because he yeah. was in Himalaya doing trying to set some record or doing some like fun stuff that he wanted to do. I saw him on the way as well. So I think there was something in my mind saying. You know, he was just taking it so normally to do a UTMB, like to run 100 miles with COVID positive, and uh, it's just normal yeah. to do anything. So, yeah, I just didn't feel it yeah, that much. Yeah, that's amazing. He's uh, he actually he, he was going to be trying a, like a new or uh, like a new route or to do a speed record on one of the routes or something on Everest. But he didn't actually do a summit this year, did he? I think he got injured or was sick or something. Or, yeah, I forget. I forget what. Was yeah, yes, yeah, he was. I think initially he might be planning to do some speed record. Yeah. Uh, but this is not a very good year for record. Um, I mean, ever I think most of people who who are trying for a speed record didn't really do it. Um, it was so really windy this year, wasn't it? So if you'd the, have been taking so any like West Ridge Kumbu, or something, yeah, the Kumbu Icefall was really long this year because normally they do a lot of uh, ladders, yeah. right? You've probably seeing some of the movies, the ladders, but this year ladders were not as much. So they they did a lot. They they choose probably the way the easier to walk trail, yeah. but the distance was longer. That's for one. For two is I think it's just everybody got sick this year. Even yeah. Killian was sick this year as, as well. Yeah. So it was not very ideal. Plus the, su the, 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 the summit push, it was, the window was long, but there was wind. It yeah. was not, and the weather was not as predictable as what we saw on the, um, the weather forecast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you, um, you made it up on, was it the 16th or 17th of May? Um, when did you actually do your summit push? So, so the funny thing was um, because uh, at some point, Everest, as what I said just now, for me was not really about whether I can submit or not. It was more so about how fast I can submit. Um, so I was planning to do a speed record as well for females. So the uh, according to Guinness record, the speed, the fastest female to submit um, Everest from base camp to submit one push is 20, 25 hours, 15 minutes. But according to the Sherpa, there was some Sherpa female who actually did, did it in 22 hours. So I was initially thinking I would do the 25-50 thing, but they asked me to do the 22-hour record thing. So I, anyhow, with all the COVID and everything, I still decided to try it. <coughs> and I started on 16th, May 16th, 4 p.m., from base camp, um, and I arrived in camp four, which is around 8,000, so 7950, at 17th morning, 
I think before 9 a.m. So it was less than 17 hours. Okay, wow. Um, but so for the 25.50, yeah. I was okay, but for 22, I was too late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and... And sorry, and you got there at 9 a.m. to camp four. Yeah. That's on the South Coal, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's actually quite, that would be really late to set off for a summit push normally, would it not? Like, because you are to be able to, you the turnaround time you needs to be like by midday latest or something, doesn't it? On uh, um, I think the cutoff time is for normal, like normal mountaineers yeah. um, because they want to save enough time for them to calm down. But for yeah. people who are fast enough, it doesn't matter as long as the wind is not too strong. Yeah. But the thing is for us, for what I, I knew, the day after like 3 or 4 p.m., the wind is going to be quite strong on the top. Yeah. And I wasn't sure if I could make it in time. Also because when I was at Camp 3, because I arrived at Camp 3 a bit earlier than I expected. So the food wasn't ready. So I ate some like spicy noodle, yeah. and, and which got my stomach really sensitive. So I wasn't really feeling well. Yeah. So I decided to play safe. And I stayed in Camp 4 for the whole day until the evening when I feel better. And then I, do, I did a normal summit push. OK. And then so what time did you set off that evening? Uh, seven something p.m. Seven p.m. That which is actually really early. So you, you must have been one of the first to summit on that. Yeah, day, I decided I didn't want to stay in any queue. Yeah. Um. So and I knew if I start, n normally nobody could really catch me. Yeah. Um. So I started really early. Um, and I submitted like three something. Three a.m. Yeah. yeah. Three something a.m. Um. Yeah, it was really dark and really windy. And, and as I came down, I actually, I was actually um, at Hilary Step. There was people yeah. crossing, because it was one way, right? Um, yeah. So people were crossing. I was standing there waiting, and it was really windy. And I was like, oh, shit, this is like so bad. If I wait in the queue for longer, I might have just, yeah. Like too cold and would have just, yeah. Yeah, like, like there were a lot of feeling, you know, because... Uh, Everest is still Everest. It's still yeah. like so so much higher than anything else. Um, I remember I was changing my oxygen at um, after Hilary Step, so before the summit. Yeah. So around eight thousand eight hundred meters, yeah. I was changing my oxygen, and it was really cold and dark and windy. And I think it only took one or two minutes for my Sherpa to change the oxygen, but I feel it was so long that at some point I wanted, wanted to turn back and say, hey, can you like be faster? And I feel I couldn't even turn back. I yeah. would rather save the energy to actually breathe deeply until the oxygen come to me. Yeah, yeah. So it was that, you know, that, that kind of feeling. So every time I stop and wait for somebody, I'm like, oh my God, please do not be like even colder than this or please go faster. Otherwise I need to like stand there and shake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What um, what makes you so fast? Why do you think you're uh, you're so so quick in uh, yeah compared to like normal climbers as you say? I think it's it's the trail running I've been doing for for the time. You think so? So it's it's just around like fitness and in, and, and endurance. Um, I mean that's the basic. Um, yeah. Plus I think. Would it be technique as well, maybe? Just because it seems like you spend a lot of time in the, in the mountains as well, yeah, especially I think, in Sichuan. I think, yeah, exactly. I think that's a good point because I did a lot of like so-called alpine, alpine style. Yeah. Uh, when I was in Sichuan, so I went with my just some climbing partners, not really with a guide, and we did some like technical climbings there as well. So I'm quite familiar with like all the scrambling and all the, the rope and all the knots. Yeah. Right? And I also took a course uh, in Sichuan Mountaineering Association. 
yeah. um, which at least if I can like guide other people or help some other people, at least I, I could I could support myself, right? So I did a lot of those kinds of training that made me familiarize with all these mountains with yeah. high attitude. Yeah, yeah, I think strategy plays a part. Yeah, so you you got down off of um, off of Everest, but you're you didn't get all the way down, right? You, got, <laughs> you, you get back down to Camp Four yeah, or yeah. get back to the um, the South Coal. And yeah, your your expedition wasn't done there. No, yeah, I yeah. So I was. It was more so. It, so Lotte, which is the fourth highest peak in the world, is very near to Everest. So they they basically share the same way all the way until seven thousand eight hundred meters. So at that, then you go straight. You do the North Lotte summit, and then you go left. You do Everest summit. So I came back to Lotte, um, Camp Four. Um, and then the next day I did uh, Lotte and then I went all, all the way down. Yeah, yeah amazing. And because um, Lotte actually looks re- quite technical for the final part of the climb. Was it was it a tougher summit? I mean, obviously not as high. So what is it? 8,500. Yeah. yeah. So but um, but yeah, how was the How was the like that 500 uh, meter climb uh, to the summit? Is it technical? Is it difficult? It was steep. Yeah. It was not so much, I mean, compared with K2, it's not technical at all. Yeah. Um, the last bit was a little bit like rock and yeah. rock and ice mixed climbing. But I think what scares me off is because on Everest the day we had a teammate who, who basically couldn't make it to come down. Yeah. Uh, so I was, because I was doing a translation job, so I was helping the, 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 the Chinese team and the Sherpa to, to talk about all this, so I knew everything. Um, and then the next day, I went on to Lotte. Ten meters before the summit, there was a guy, like like a mommy, lying there. Yeah. So I think I was I heard like a, a probably eight or nine years ago he was he he tried to do Lotte without oxygen, and he came down like ten meters. He was just sitting there resting, and somehow he fell asleep, and then he just. He died, yeah. Yeah, and, and he, he was kept so well because it was so cold up there. You can still see his face, pretty much. Yeah. So, and I was sitting there, like, shaking my legs. It was really, I think it was more emotionally tough. Yeah, that's got to be pretty haunting, like, to, and, yeah, just stepping over that as well is, like, is pretty scary, huh? Yeah, at that, that point, yeah. That was my first time I'd been so close to, like, this yeah. kind of yeah. Um, there, I mean, you mentioned the Chinese climber. The uh, there was also a, a couple of Malaysian climbers as well that yeah. um, that perished on Everest this year. It was a pretty. It's one of the worst years ever, actually, wasn't it? So it's like Indeed. there's seventeen it was or bad. something. It was bad. It was really bad. Yeah. So coming down off Lotsi, like it must have been like uh, an amazing feeling. But then having with the news of the Chinese climber in your team. As well as, I'm not sure at that point whether the Singaporean and the Malay climber had also, uh, whether it was after you, was it after your summit push? That, so that I knew about the Singaporean on the way down. Yeah. Because just accidentally I heard over the radio from another company, say Singaporean, Singaporean rescue. I mean, I, I didn't understand the, the rest of the things, but I heard yeah. the keywords. So I knew something was wrong. Uh, I can't remember the Mal- but. Because the Malaysian actually visited them a few times and they're really nice. Yeah. So as I came down, I was, yeah, I didn't even, like, I never got to celebrate anything about Everest and Lotte, actually. Yeah. Just didn't feel it. Yeah, mm. I can imagine. And um, 
and yeah, for the Singaporean um, climber as well, yeah, it's very sad. But he's. I don't think it was it was his body found or was no. he st- still no yeah, yeah. no the Ma- one of the Malaysian and the Singaporean the Singaporean, based on what we know, he's he fell to the north side of Everest. Yeah. So the Tibet side, which I, I don't think it's it's very hard to find it. I would say. Yeah. 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 Um, and the Malaysian, supposed to be somewhere on the south side, but they did a month of search, still cannot find it. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is, it, yeah, it's it's sort of, and we'll, we'll talk about it on K2 as well, but it's, you know, you go and climb these high altitude mountains and you must have to face this as well. And you must have to have this discussion with your parents as well. There is always the risk that you either run out of oxygen or that you, there's some issue in there or there's a block in your oxygen mask or you get injured up there or there's always something that can happen. And you take that risk whenever you sign up to this and it's, Whilst you hope that you'll be able to, but you, you can never rely on to be saved when you're up at, the, uh, at, at that kind of altitude. You need to be able to get yourself off the mountain. You can't wholly rely. I, a Sherpa can, can get you to the summit. They can't save you from not climbing back down. But they, they can help you get up, but they can't. I mean, yeah. so, yeah. I mean, you got to be, you got to, we get peace with death. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, I, there there is probably this saying like, if you never think about dying, then or if you never thought about death, then you probably shouldn't really go to like all these mountains. I mean, yeah. I don't know how how the original quote is, but the thing is, you can play all this situation in your mind. Like try to prevent everything, but if you're gonna die, you're gonna die. Yeah, I just need to be peaceful with it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and coming off this expedition with Everest and Lotzi, which was like first Singaporean female ever to to do the the two-fer, to do the double double summit, and you knew straight away you were going to go for K2? Yeah, I was quite sure. I was quite sure. I mean, um, it was emotionally not sure, uh, physically quite sure, but I didn't immediately like tell my tell 8K that I was gonna do it. I, it took me a week to really settle down with my emotion. Also trying to dealing with like the, um, the you know the helping translation with the Chinese family plus the Sherpa and all that. So after that, I adjusted myself a little bit. Yeah, but still eventually, I mean, I, I decided to do it. So yeah. And it was only it was only eight weeks after that you needed to head to Maybe the Karakoram. Uh, it was only it was a month. Yeah, it wow. was a month. Okay, so there wasn't any time to really... Because coming down off that kind of expedition, your body has been wasting away for the past six weeks, really. You've just been, you know, it's been eating itself up at altitude, right? You can't eat enough to be able to to be able to keep on enough, like eat enough protein or anything to be able to keep the same muscle. So you must have felt pretty depleted um, coming back. Like, did you... What did you do over that month to get prepared to go back to... to go to K2? It took me like three weeks to get back to running a little bit. But I think the, the, the thing is also that because being able to climb Everest and Lotzi, I was acclimatized. Yes. So for K2, I didn't need such a long time to acclimatize and to be in the mountains. So I went actually almost 10 days later than my teammates. Okay. So I had okay. a little bit more time in the sea level and then eat and drink. The most important thing was to actually eat and drink and sleep. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, because you almost want to be able to put on some weight to be able to carry some. We're not. I, I, in fact, I'm interested actually how you feel about this, like because obviously you lose a lot of body fat and you lose a lot of muscle while you're up there. So is it actually a good thing to be to be carrying a bit of weight when you go off, so you've got energy to be able to burn when you get up there, or is that? going to be too much weight to carry up the mountain like i think a little bit weight would be helpful yeah i still believe like for especially for high attitude you if you see all the sherpas you don't really see them like super slim yeah they actually are they actually have a little bit fat yeah i think that's just how we are built up yeah um so i've always have like a fair amount of body fat, so I think that might help with spontaneity. Yeah. I don't <laughs> you know. You don't look like it. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, I. The, the thing is about muscle. I mean, because I was reading about Killian's injury as well, and he was saying he might be getting back too soon into the mount in a in a running scene that he got injured after Himalayas. I think you basically feel like you know, like an old person losing all your muscle at a very like late stage of your life. So when yeah. I came back from all these mountains, I feel like I don't have the strength. Yeah. Yeah. It's just you have your, your fat or a little bit fat yeah. and skin. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're, yeah, you're, your muscles waste away quite a bit. But how was the acclimatization on K2? The challenge with K2 this year, and first of all, K2 is, was actually, I feel better with K2 than Everest because we were not sick. And K2 yeah. was dry. Yeah. So, and it's during summer, so it's actually hotter. Yeah. The temperature was slightly higher than Everest. But it's also quite, uh, I mean, they, they call K2 Savage Mountain. Savage mountain. Yeah. So the wind can be like really strong and, um, and the weather is more unpredictable. So for K2, the, the challenge was really with the weather because this year, at some point, the weather was like good for a long time and then bad for a long time. Yeah. So it was very hard to really adjust and then catch the window for summit. Yeah. So the, the rotation was actually during the good window, but it was late. So yeah. we're supposed to normally do the, the rotation probably before 10th of July, but we started at 12th of July. So when we came back, we were pretty much, we were supposed to do the summit push already. Right. Yeah. And. Um, so you you had a good acclimatization coming in, having coming off of Everest and Lotsi, so you joined a bit late. So that um, that didn't matter too much that the acclimatization started late. But how was the the summit window to be able to to be able to head up? Was there you mentioned in Everest there was like a really big summit window? But how was it for K two? Yeah, all, all this drama happens during the summit push for K two um, because when. When we were, after our rotation, the good window stayed for a little bit longer. And then I think from 20, 21st or something of July, no more good window anymore, probably even until sometime in August. We didn't know at that time, but just looking at end of July, no good weather. And that, for some reason, um, all these expedition companies were telling us we have to leave by end of July. So we sort of, just didn't have a good good window, so they decided to choose the better days in the bad weather to do the summit push. Um, and by the time we came back from rotation, the rope was only fixed to Camp Three, seven thousand three hundred meters. So there was still like a thousand three hundred meter meters that doesn't have any rope yet. Um, 
so we were very skeptical. We were not even sure like what's going on, whether the rope can be fixed, whether we're gonna really go for summit push and whatsoever. So eventually they decide to send us for summit push. For us it was 22nd of July. I think for some other team it was 23rd, but they were trying to catch. Cause I saw like, after we look at all these weathers, at some point we knew 28th of July was gonna be a really, starting from 20th July was gonna be a really bad storm. So we need to do everything before 27th. So they were trying to look at 25, 26, 27. But so we started and then, but the weather was again, not predictable. So every, every camp we went, we have to sort of stop and wait until probably a good couple of hours that we could do another, we could go to another camp. So we were like staying in camp one for one more day. We, we went to camp three, we stayed there for another day as well. And the, the fix, road fixing team was, find it very challenging as well because of the deep snow. And this year the snow in K2 was worse than previous years. Um, so anyway, until 26th of July, we all went to camp three. The rope was still not fixed yet. Um, and the, the, all this expedition company just decided to say, decided to send us all up together with the rope fixing team on 27th because 28th, everyone need to come down. Right, so you were, you were all trying to summit behind the rope fixing team that were having to cut steps and fix ropes at the same time? Yes, exactly. And so on K2, they don't, on Everest, the rope fixing team is basically there's like a bidding system isn't there where yeah. they were just there where all of the teams would, would go because in we and will pay it. for yeah we'll pay for the rope fixing fee and then you will be put into a pool and then they will the, the, the nepal i guess it's tourism board or whoever is in charge will give it to a company to actually uh, fix the rope yeah but k2 is less structured so yeah. all these companies there plus the ind independent climbers like everyone is to come together and contribute yeah. Someone is recording it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on that actual summit day going up, you at what point do you you were actually going up with the um or, or you, you caught up with the rope fixing team? So the rope fixing team left um during the like in the morning, maybe around eleven AM. We started probably five or six PM. Yeah. Um and because I knew I was fast and there was another Nepali female with me, Nepali female mountaineer with me. Uh, so both of us were relatively fast. So we were actually quite in front. Um, and then at some point there was something wrong with my headlamp. <laughs> so <laughs> it was quite embarrassed, but, um, but there was a button on my headlamp that I didn't know that I need to long, long press, so it didn't turn on. So I had to t team up with the other, t like the other client with- To with share the their headlamp with them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but luckily, I mean, for K2 is from the, from 5,000 to seven, to camp three, they're very technical, very challenging, but the summit push was slightly better. So yeah. that made my life a little bit easier. Um, but yeah, so we were like really slowly, slowly going up until like at around 8,000 meters, we saw the bottleneck, which is yep. at um, 8,200 meters. So in front of us, we saw the light. So we knew the rope fixing team was over there. So it was pretty much around like, I guess 11 PM, maybe yeah. midnight. And this is the point where there's a huge Serac hanging yeah, out. Yeah, so the we saw the t rope fixing team was fixing rope there. Yeah. We were still below, so we, slowly slowly went up yeah yeah um and because there, there was also you had christian harillo who was uh, attempting the final of her fourteen thousand meter record effort to 
beat Nim's prior record of, uh, uh, and to do it in like, by, by like two and a half months or something, to do it in three months. She was on the mountain at the same time and the rope fixing team were, that they were, you caught up to them? So the rope fixing team was in front of us. I didn't, I didn't know where Christine was at that moment, but as we approached the rope fixing team at, at, at the bottleneck, the rope fixing team, a few, a few lights were, were actually passing the bottleneck already. They went to the other side of the bottleneck, which is like a blue ice section, a steep climb blue ice section. Um, but there were still headlamps at the bottleneck, so we were wondering like why they are so slow. So we went up and and so because bottleneck you go up a pretty steep slope and then you sort of turn left, going down a little bit, and then you go up again. Um, so at that point, as we turn into the traverse, um, hanging on the rope with like one, it's basically like one foot show kind of thing. Um, we saw like. I just, we saw the, you know, if you have seen the news this year, a Pakistani uh, porter died there. It was pretty big. So we actually saw him. I didn't know, you, I didn't, I didn't really know who he was. I didn't even know it was a he or a she, basically. I just heard someone like saying, oh, and then lying upside down with his belly outside. Um, so I was wondering like, who was actually in between, you know, the rope fixing team and me, who was, or us, who were, who were the first group of clients. Yeah. Um, and there was another guy up there watching um, yeah. at where the, this Pakistani porter fell. So I thought it might be a client from, you know, uh, some, some Pakistani company. Um, but anyhow, so we were stuck there. My Sherpa went to check. But because the section was very technical and my Sherpa was really young, um, he also sort of almost slept. So, yeah, so it was like, it was quite scary because we didn't know what to do. And I was on the um, a very unsafe anchor as well because when the, the porter fell, he pulled out the anchor. Um, and we were just sort of stoned there for a bit until um, Christine and her team came. Um, and her Sherpa was quite experienced, so they were trying to help this guy. So they went, to, went across us um, together with my Sherpa. They were trying to help the guy and bring the guy up like, to the right sitting position. And so Had Christine been behind you at this point? Yeah, he was behind, uh, she was behind us. Yeah. Yeah, and she went, went in front. And, and she was, yeah, so her team um, was trying to, trying to help this guy. So, because initially I thought he only fell for like five or six meters. Did so, you see him fall? No, I didn't, I didn't yeah. see it. When I saw him, he was already like upside down. Yeah. So I was literally wondering like, why couldn't he just sit up? But yes. he just couldn't. So once they turned him back to the right position, we realized something was wrong because he could not move or speak. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that's at that kind of section, that's the time you feel bad. Like, you feel something is really wrong. So they were trying to help him, and we were trying to fix another rope. Um, and at some point, there was an avalanche in front of us as well, which I knew uh, um, it hit a few people down there, and some, some team decided to turn back. So there were a lot of things happening for that. We stayed there for like two hours. And at some point, the rope was fixed. Um, and people were get really scared. 
because even I want to turn back because at some point I thought like maybe you know this guy's expedition company should organize something to help and maybe um, we need to turn back and get the more experienced people to actually go and support but as I turned back there was like 200 people queuing behind me <laughs> so at some point I shouted like can we move back a little bit because I was on I want to move back to the safe anchor and nobody would move because I think every, everybody got really scared um, yeah so anyhow at some point people were, people were shouting move move yeah so we went up so then you had to climb literally because the guy was actually on the trail pretty much wasn't no, he? No he was not he, he was, was not? not he was down he was down below there so they were trying to pull him up right uh, so when I passed I actually didn't even remember um, we didn't really go across the guy, so like a lot of people were saying, but at that time people were doing rescue. Yeah, okay, mm. okay. Um, I mean, there's been, and, and from then, how far was the push up to the summit from then? So from there, that was 8,200 meters. Okay, so there was still a good three or 400 meters. To, yeah, yeah, so after that, the rope, so it went to the other side almost to, so the rope on the blue ice part was not fixed at all. We used old ropes. Yeah. At some point I, I really thought of like turning back, but also like it's e it was just easier for me to go up to a yeah. certain point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, if I turn back, I would like go across all these 200 people behind me. Yeah. <laughs> it was going to be really tough. So as we approach the last section, which is actually a pretty f like flatter, slow, snow slope, um, that's where no more rope. So all the rope ends there. And then Christine and her Sherpa was already in front. So I saw them fixing, sort of trying to open the, the trail. The fixing team was behind them. And we gradually go, went behind them. And then we were just basically queuing there for five more hours before we went to the summit. And you're waiting for a rope to be fixed for? Not even a rope to be fixed, just opening the road. Somebody opening the trail, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So like cutting steps, because you say it was really deep snow yeah, there exactly. as well. Yeah, exactly. So was, was Christine and her Sherpa the first to summit on that, yeah. on that day? So the Sherpa Lama, yeah. he was, I think, opening the trail. Christine was behind supporting. Yeah. And then the rope fixing team was behind. Yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah, wow. And did you spend much time on the summit? I think I spent like 45 minutes or so. Yeah. Um, and, and then coming back down, did you have to, were there a lot of people at the bottleneck still when you were coming back down? No, or everybody was on, everybody was just queuing on the last section. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it was easy enough to pass on the way back down then? Uh, the, the blue ice part was still a little bit hard. Yeah. Um, because there was no new rope, so we need to be really careful. We need to basically grab all the ropes together yeah, and put yeah. our safety at, at different ropes just in case like, one, one rope fell. Um, but yeah, coming back was... Did you have a, a Zuma on one of the ropes, though, coming down? Coming down, uh, not really. Like, we have ATC. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, wow. And, and was there any problems getting... And coming coming back down, And was there anyone with the porter on the way back down? Or did you see, did you see him on the He way passed back? away when, when we saw him. And the other... The, the guys were gone. I yeah. mean, the, the, he had... Like, after we came down, we know there was... The guy was... The guy there watching was his friend, and he was gone. Yeah. Um... Yeah. Yeah, and there's been a lot of controversy around it, and and for Christine, who just an absolutely amazing effort to be able to do the the fourteen eight thousanders in three months, but it's kind of been tarnished by the um, 
by this porter having having passed away who who they did spend some time with i mean you you said you saw them they were in front of you like trying to check on this guy and trying to help him but at, at the point at which he had fallen and you can see the videos online it was just at the right at the bottleneck underneath the serac and it was just a really precarious spot there's no way i mean you, there are there have been occasions where people have been saved on, in, on Everest from 8,000. I mean, there was one with, uh, was it the Malaysian guy that was carried down by a yeah, Sherpa, like by wrapped a very up? very strong, strong, very strong Sherpa. But that, I mean, Everest below 8,400 before, before uh, the Hillary the, 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 what they call balcony. I mean, yeah. even before Hillary's step, but let's say just below balcony, yeah. Because it's there is no like very exposed area. Yeah. But for bottleneck, it's like what seventy degree, and yeah. then you do a traverse on top of it, and then it's like only you can basically put one step ahead of the other. Yeah. Um. Plus with the Sarac above, with all this icefall and avalanche, I really don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's a, I, and, and and you go and you look at some of the the comments on the like on. YouTube videos where she was on BBC and uh, and there's loads of these kind of armchair trolls basically or like uh, um, that are just giving like and calling out all oh, about the ego of these people that are just that are, that are walking past this um, this porter. I mean, first and foremost, like porters should not be up there. Like that, that's not, porters are there to actually get all of the gear into, there's a big trek into K2 base camp, right? And that's, that's what right. they're, they're paid to do. Now they're not, to actually then progress, because you can have porters, I mean, when I climbed Mirror Peak, we actually got our porter to come and climb with us because we only had one Sherpa for three climbers and we were like, what if someone gets sick? Then we'd mm -hmm. all have to turn around. So we got, and end up, but that's a trekking peak. You don't go, you don't, and, and that was a, um, a Nepalese, pretty strong technical climber just and not to say that this porter wasn't but he'd never actually climbed any of the the large mountains before that's, yeah that's what i know his job was to he so there are some porter uh the high attitude porter who can carry stuff all the way to camp three okay um but from what I, what i know um this guy he was his job was basically to carry stuff to the base camp he's never gone up Right above the base camp before. Yeah, I mean he did, he doesn't even have a downswing. That's why I feel really weird at the moment. I was like something was not right. Like why is somebody not wearing you know a downswing? I have his belly out. I was, I mean for me at that moment I was I didn't process enough information. But for me just the whole image in front of me looked really really weird yeah because yeah. his belly hanging out and like to not be in a full down suit when you're um when you're up at that no altitude. his belly was exposed like yeah. at 8200 meters no, uh, and when you read into the story a little bit more apparently his mother was really sick and he had to earn money yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but you have to put blame on on the the trekking company that that he was working for that was allowing him to be up there without the right gear he wouldn't have had oxygen he wouldn't have had the experience to be up there and to put all the responsibility on Kristin and and the blame on on her and her sherpa because they were the first to summit because they were going for this record as though they didn't care about this person at all and all they cared about was their own ego about about climbing this i just find it uh, really disappointing that people would uh, like 
put so much blame on someone when it's not their responsibility. If you're up there in the mountains, you have you're responsible for yourself. And as you mentioned before, you have to be you have to like almost be comfortable with the possibility of dying up there, and, and um, because it's a reality, right? And and you can't expect someone's going to save you if you get into trouble up there. And so. It, it just reading all these sort of like armchair climbers that have probably never been anywhere near like any mountains, let alone an 8,000 meter, um, and, and just the amount of abuse that she's received, and all of the like, and generally people have. I mean, you mentioned that you'd actually like commented on uh, on a yeah, couple of posts, I did right? a comment. So when she came up to s- came up to say the story, I actually commented on her Instagram and saying, hey, I saw what you did. And, um, you know, at that point of time, at that attitude, at that place, um, you really did it. Um, and yeah, and then people looked up my profile and I said a lot of like hatred words as well um, under my posts. So it yeah. was quite, um, yeah, it was quite scary. Yeah, and, and a lot of it is saying around like, oh, these people with all of this ego and everything, and like, oh, you're just doing it for the, uh, just for the props for like the, I don't know, like the Instagram response, and but they just don't get it. They just don't, think, these people don't get it. Yeah, but I think you know everything has an evolution, right? It's, I mean, mountaineering. Let's say it's an industry. It evolves, and you know, previously there were a lot of like so-called alpine climbers, and they sort of really, they were sort of really the pioneer of um, you know getting people interested in this in in these sports. And now many people are trying to experience and see how it feels. I mean, there are really like, and, and there there are a lot of egoism inside. I'm not saying no. So. To a certain point, I think, you know, things like this happen. For one, it means mountaineering gets more attention across the whole world, um, which means that the sport, this sport particularly, is developing. Um, By the same time, I think it also triggers rethinking. Because for any industry to be sustainable, you're going to have a balance between like what's real, what's authentic versus what's commercialized. Yeah. So I think probably this voice is also trying to help, trying, trying to help the in- industry to sort of reflect and, and trying to find the balance. Because you also talk about environment, right? You also talk about humanity, you talk about ethics, a lot of things. So uh, at some point, I think, yeah, it's just part of the evolution to think and rethink and get this sport to a more sustainable way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I think uh, there is, and, and it's one of the reasons that like Everest for me, I'd love to climb an 8,000 meter mountain, but Everest doesn't appeal to me because there are just so many people in there. And there is a lot of like, oh, I just want to be on the, just want to do the highest mountain in the world rather than like, do it for just to be in the mountains and just to do it for the love of the mountains and the experience and the personal challenge. It's like, it has to be the tallest mountain in the world just because, um, you know, it is the tallest. And I, I think that, um, yeah, it's, it, it's, yeah, mountaineering is going through an interesting phase at the moment. And I think, but it's just that most of the people that comment just don't really get it. And, uh, yeah. and I think like, for you, like your, it seems your passion came from just being like tr- trying Kilimanjaro, just the feeling of being in the mountains, coming from a part of the world that is renowned for having mountaineers and has got some incredible mountains. But it's kind of like, would you? Is, is it like a personal 
drive and ambition to do it? I mean, what, what do you do it for? What's your purpose of getting into the mountains? I just, I feel mountains make me feel alive. It's, it's just the moment where I, when I'm in the mountains, I feel alive. Yeah, that's really it. Um, plus, I think because I came from where like nowhere near sports, and I just keep kept tra- challenging my potential. And at some point, I, yeah, I just want to keep seeing how f- how far human can go. I mean, not saying human, human I mean me can go. So I think it's more of a you know just being in the mountain and see where my potential is. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's it. And it's about a, it's about a personal endeavor. And I don't think, I, I, but I think the people that do come in do so because they know that they're not doing anything to push them themselves. They're, they're fi- it's coming from a point of them feeling inadequate slightly. I think it's also, it also comes from a, a very, um, how do I put Because it takes up, uh, mountaineering is very expensive, right? Yeah. Everest and Cape, yeah. these are all very expensive mountains. So I think it's also from the current It's kind situation. of an elitist thing, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, people just hate, a lot of people hate rich people nowadays. <laughs> So I think it also comes from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, that does beg the question as well. Like, how do you, uh, how do you like afford to do it as well? Because it is expensive, right? Like, I mean, you, um, yeah. What do you do for a living? Like, what do you do to like save up to be able to go on these expeditions? Uh, I uh, work in an IT company um, for for strategy and transformation, um, and I. I think being in Singapore, right, it gives me opportunity to earn a relatively good salary at this age after graduate. Um, so the money really comes mostly from the savings from the past years, plus a little bit like um, a small sponsorship from some of my friends. Not friends, but like, yeah, friends. Um, but also like, yeah. Friends got that have companies or like, yeah. Yeah, what, something what like that. <laughs> something what, like. What, do you want to shout them out? Who's been helping you? So, um, I mean, one, one team that I want to shout out is uh, my running club, Zephyr. Um, yeah. So they have been supporting a lot. Um, so they are like friends, but also, yeah, that's what you said, with a brand. Um, so, and then there are like a couple of uh, brands that gave, supported me with uh, gear as well, like the Zenon, the, the tracking pole, yeah. um, as well as one of the, uh, the Kailas gave me the, sponsored me before in my last look, the dunk suit as well. Um, yeah. So called brands there. Um, and also like just my uh, Chinese expedition company who actually gave me a pretty good deal for, for the tras- translation job. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So that really helped. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and yeah, you work for SAP, right? Yes, yeah. yes. Oh, yeah, I want to shout out to them as like being like so supportive in, in terms of uh, employee going to pursue their personal passion. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, no, it's very cool that, um, uh, you know, to have supporting managers and, and also it's just great exposure for, um, you know, for, for SAP as well. I think that when you've got people that work for your company that are high achievers, but that do so both on their personal side as well as their, uh, um, as well as, as well as professionally. Um, so you, you got back from K2 and then you went, uh, you went over to Bali as well. You like got your trail runners on soon after <laughs> coming back, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, that, that'd be huge thanks to Asia Trail Master, right? Cause I got this, uh, I went into the championship last year and I got top 10. So I sort of got, I, I can sort of go for like all these ATM races, which I definitely 
want to get back to the championship this year as well. So I started to do a few. Yeah. I signed up for a few races. I didn't expect Bali to be so close to my K2 summit, but K2 was so late this year. This nothing much I could do, so I just decided to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and so what else is coming up for you now then? Are you going to do a few more of the, uh, of the trail races? Yeah, to definitely to try to get into the finale. So I will do a VMM in Vietnam, yeah. um, which I know you're going for 70K as well. Yeah, yeah. no, I'm excited to be up there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, what, then, and you're doing 70K? Yes, yeah, 70K, yeah. yeah. Um, and then potentially Chiang Rai. Yes. Also Chiang Rai, probably 100K. Yeah. Um, and probably MMTF, 50K, depending on how it plays out at the end of the season. Yeah, and then yeah. that will get you into the finals in uh, in December, right? Hopefully, yes. Yeah, 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 all being well. Yeah, well, very excited to see you up at, um, at, at VMM. See, have, you, have you been up to Sapa before? No. Okay, it's no. beautiful. You're going to love heard, it. Yeah, but yeah. I heard it's also very muddy, so... Hopefully it won't be that. Last year was very muddy. Hopefully uh, this year will be, um, yeah, w w there won't be as much rain. It shouldn't rain as much this time of year, but it's only three weeks away. Bloody hell, I was just looking at the, looking at the, uh, the diary there. And uh, there's UTM, I see you're like wearing a UTMB hat. Have you run? Uh, have you run? I in, went to TDS last year. You did TDS last year, did you? I didn't, I didn't finish. Um, I got heat stroke. Because uh, it was really, stroke. it was really hot during TDS last year. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and I, I didn't react. I do, I don't really react very well with heat. Okay. So my, yeah. my thing is with cold. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah but. Yeah, I went there last year and I'm wearing this just because it's UTMB weekend. It is UTMB week, yeah, yeah. And yeah, um, yeah we're excited to, to follow people. It kicks off UTMB today. But there was a, a few people like doing TDS and uh, and OCC and Triple C this yeah, week as well. Yeah, just probably shout out to all these people doing UTMB series. Good luck and enjoy your race. Yeah, no, we're um, yeah excited to excited to follow you. But um, Vincere, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Congratulations. I know that coming off both of those uh, those expeditions, there was obviously like some sad parts to it and some controversy, but you should feel extremely proud of what you've achieved. And uh, and yeah, first female to do both Lotzi and Everest in one expedition. First Singaporean female to, um, along with P.S. Sim, we've got to shout out P.S. Sim, who we've had on the podcast before, is an absolute star. Did you see P.S. much on the mountain when you were... Um, I saw her in the base camp. In base camp. Uh, yeah. Not in the mountain. We were, we, we, we were with different teams. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, congratulations on an amazing year and very excited to see. Uh, and outside of trail running, any other big mountains on your... Uh, uh, I'll keep training and probably at some point I'll decide to do something I don't know yet. Yeah, <laughs> you've still got plenty of years of mountaineering in you. So uh, you're not going to... Although you might do some speed records on summits, you don't need to... You don't need to do a speed record. And well, who's going to beat Christian anyway now with doing all 14 in three months? I think that's going to be impossible. To uh, yeah, beat. and she did like Everest and what he was in like eight hours. So, wow. Yes, she, she is amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's off the charts. Well, uh, hats off to her as well. I think that she deserves a lot more plaudits than she's had off the back of it. But um, awesome, Vincere. Thank you for coming on. And uh, and yeah, best of luck for your, for your races for the next few months. Thank you for having me and see you in VMM. See you, VMM. Cheers. Tell the truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Mr. Rick Stockfish, how you doing, sir? Good to see you. Good to see you, Scott, as always. Yeah, it's just pleasure, following along on Strava, just uh, actually seeing your face is a is a treat, mate. Yeah, yeah. Have you been enjoying the uh, European summer in, in Barcelona? I don't know if enjoying is the right word. It was in fucking hot. Um, 
but yeah, I got up into the into the big mountains in the Pyrenees, which was pretty spectacular. Um, I'll have to get you over there sometime. And uh, yeah, it's starting to cool off a little bit as we head into September. So yeah, all good. Yeah, nice. I mean, talking of big mountains, wow, Vincere is impressive, right? Yeah, what a, what an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, just to be the first Singaporean lady to to climb K two, and we've also got to shout out PS Sim as well that we've had on the podcast before that summited as well. Um, but to do that off the back of having done Everest and Lotsi as a as a twofer, like what? Um, yeah, just what an incredible achievement. Yeah, she's certainly she's certainly racking up the records. The first first female, first Singaporean to do quite a lot of this stuff. So it's uh, yeah, really impressive. Yeah, I, I I did. It it was just interesting hearing her take around the just the controversy on the high, like some of the the summits in Everest with the, so many deaths on Everest, and obviously many close to home with the Singaporean and Malaysian um, that that were you know are still unfound on on the mountain, and uh, and yeah, with the with the um, Pakistani porter on K two with all the controversy there. But I mean, it's just par for the course with mount, uh, high altitude mountaineering nowadays, isn't it? It's um, there's so much of a spotlight on uh, on all of these expeditions, and uh, and yeah, it's front page news now. Yeah, and I think um, I think really with a lot of this stuff, you can only really listen to to other climbers and people who know the know those mountains, know the conditions and the culture, and I think <clears throat> a lot of that noise online was quite evidently from people who had never been there um and i think you know hearing what vincent has to say is really is really valuable yeah i mean to consider that she was right there as christian harilla was completing her 14 summits out of eight thousand meters in and also that that christine did it in three months and one day it's like half the time that Nims took. It's just, uh, uh, but unfortunately, like that, the the accomplishment has just been clouded by the fact that they had to, it, as though even though they tried to help this porter there, there the you know it's just been tainted by the fact that they didn't save them. But all of these armchair keyboard warriors and keyboard mount like armchair mountaineers that there's just no way you're going to be able to rescue someone from that point on k2 it's like the, one of the most precarious points on the whole of the savage mountain it's just um but <clears throat> yeah i i the, it's you can't really go against the 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 trolls on online though you kind of i think vincere is like i don't really want to sort of get involved in it or try and you know she took a bit of a backlash when she was trying to defend defend Kristen a bit but um yeah it's a it, it's a shame that it's been uh it's been tarnished in that way but i mean her her record will will you know will live on forever. She's the first uh, Southeast Asian, first Singaporean to uh, summit K two, and uh, yeah, that's uh, she, she's got that record, and um, and she should be supremely proud. Yeah, and I think when it comes to records, as you say, like that was half half the time that Nims took. I don't know if have you seen it? Has Nims spoken out about that at all? But like you know, I suspect there'd be an element of just records there to be broken. You know, yeah. He, well, he's he, going after doing it without oxygen at the moment, right? Uh, I think he's ten right. or twelve down at the moment. Is so that's the kind of next one that he's going after. Yeah, and it'd be a, it'd be another good follow to see see how he gets along. Um, yeah. yeah well, no, I, uh, 
just yeah just fascinating fascinating listen and um yeah huge congratulations it'd be really interesting to see what she does next yeah, well, next is uh, is VMM and a few of the Asia Trail Master races. Um, but uh, but talking about a, a good follow is uh, this weekend UTMB or this past week we've had the the UTMB series and there's been some great results so far. We've already had TDS and OCC. Uh, you had Stone uh, running in uh, um, from North Face Adventure Team, Stone Sang from Hong Kong. Uh, finished in 19th, I think, and uh, finished on the podium, which is extremely proud. There's still life in the old dog yet. And talking about life in the old dog as well, Ryan Blair, the uh, the uh, the director of the North Face Adventure Team, OCC, he finished uh, he finished a podium in his age group, which is like 60 to 65, I think so. Something like that. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Great and then just watching along now, like watching the watching the live stream. I mean, when this goes out, the results will be in. But um, Jiaxing Shen, the the guy who won, um, or we know him from winning Hong Kong Hundred in twenty nineteen, is is in the lead on a on a pretty blazing pace. Um, yeah, and Ha Hao as well. Ha Hao from Vietnam. I can never say her name correctly, but uh, but yeah, an absolute machine. And so, um, looking forward to seeing her up at, at VMM soon. But um she's in uh in a in third spot right now in uh the um the women's of triple c and yeah and, th- and then we've got the utmb which is going to be kicking off this evening um which uh we've got um uh, esther silag hong kong based is pipped to be or she, i think she's in a number three seed for it which um yeah, I'm so excited to see her. After especially our performance in Western um, Western States, finishing uh, finishing fourth, I think it was. Yeah, she's finishing fourth, yeah. which would have been a a record time in any previous year. Um, it's going to be a yeah, it's going to be a really interesting follow. And by the yeah, obviously by we're going to be publishing this over the weekend. But um, yeah, looking forward to catching up. Which is uh, due to be up in uh, in Vietnam for VMM as well. So hopefully, be getting her on the podcast soon as well. Yeah, and how are you feeling? You're a couple of weeks out from VMM now. Um, and you're going to be you're going to be running it, and also acting as a bit of a roving reporter. Yes, yeah, I'm helping uh, <clears throat> helping David out on some of the uh, David Lloyd, the race director, doing uh, some of the re- award ceremony and doing interviewing some of the uh, some of the athletes. Uh, and really, I'm kind of it's it's really a training run for me, and uh, I'm it's all like the long-term goal is four trails and this is just a bit um it's kind of an a race within the uh within the training block but uh i'm not in prime prime fitness right now i'm I'm okay but uh i will uh we'll see how it goes i've got so much work travel at the moment it makes me realize it's so difficult to train properly when you're traveling for work you just can't get all your sessions in so um yeah it's uh but i will uh i'll give it a good crack i'm doing the 70k and uh i uh yeah hope to uh not not make a fool of myself and dnf i think you're i think of... you're being overly modest mate i've been uh yeah i've been uh following along watching Strava over the last few months and i uh i, I beg to differ but let's see yeah and uh you know knowing david and having raced some of his events before like and, and you've been up there yourself like it's just a, such a spectacular location to race so um yeah very jealous yeah, we've got some, as I said, we've got Esther coming up. Ha Hao's going to be there. I can't wait to interview her. We're going to have, um, hopefully Stone. I hear Stone might be there as well, which would be amazing to see him. But we've got, 
yeah it's going to be some some on their 10th anniversary there's going to be some a star-studded field that are going to be uh uh descending on on sapper so i'm looking forward to that more than anything and uh and yeah having a little jaunt in the mountains as well have you been able to have a little jog around uh, the hills in barcelona as well yeah, I'm signed up. There's a there's a trail marathon happening in so Colsarola, the big national park here. That's sort of just on the edge of the city. Um, pretty amazing location. Like you're just right right on the edge of where where we live. Um, so there's a trail marathon there coming up in 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 October. And then what I'm learning is you've just got to get you've got to sign up for these races way in advance. Like there's none of this stuff you see in Asia where you can kind of squeak in at the last minute to these great trail races. Like everything just seems to get booked out. Um, so yeah looking ahead to next summer and just you know just like what as an appetite whether being up in um up in the pyrenees and seeing the the routes that you can pick through there and and then the gr routes amazing um so yeah let's uh we need we need to book you in for some race over here but but also just some some big days out in the mountains well i might I, i'm also planning to go up to doi this year as well actually so doi Ithanon in, um, in, yeah. in chiang mai yeah utmb up there and there's also a um that we've got the uh the the forest force um solomon um forest force races that are going on which we're we're covering with ash as well and they've got four not consecutive weekends but they've got 14 23 42 and 50 um uh, with two week breaks in between and they come with utmb points as well so with doing that i might be able to get enough uh enough stones or whatever it's called to be able to um to be able to come out to one of the one of the races in chamonix next year we'll see um but uh but yeah it was um i i do eventually need to race in europe but i still feel there's so much so much oh. to do here in asia isn't there yeah and i think that's the thing having having left it i think you realize just like how you know undiscovered and it, i mean you've touched on it already today but just that that feeling of community i mean it, it couldn't be you know something like vmm couldn't be more different from the utmb you know that real feeling of sort of community and solidarity and undiscovered trails i mean utmb is what it is but it but it isn't that anymore um yeah and i think um you'd be hard pushed in europe to find too many trail races that are off the radar the way that so many of them still are in in asia and i mean Chris has done an amazing job with Asia Trail Master of giving all of those races a higher profile. But um, <clears throat> you know, we 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 went and raced with with JP up in the Philippines only a few years ago, and it just you just felt like you've fallen off the map. Um, yeah, hundred percent. And just just amazing trails up there. So um, yeah, that's great to see. Um, yeah, so, in fact, actually, it was made making me think. Um, uh, Nikki Han, I don't know if you saw her doing the um, the race across Scotland. She she did a two hundred and twenty mile race across Scotland. Uh, in fact, uh, check out the podcast with um, the uh, the Hong Kong uh, Trail Running Association. Uh, she she she's on there talking about it. But just an incredible performance. I'm such a fan, boy. Like I'm such a fan of her. She's so incredible. And she finished, um, yeah, first uh, first female, I think fifth overall. She ended up getting trench foot. She absolutely ruined her feet once again. Um, but yeah, we're uh, talk of getting together for Rinjani next year. I think we might uh, might give the Miler a bash next year, which would be pretty cool. I think we might. Yeah, I'm going to try and convince Nikki and Will. And uh, um, to, you still to... you still rate that as as the hardest the hardest race yeah. in Asia, I think. 
absolutely. Even, even, I mean, even out, outside of four trails. Four trails, four trails yeah. yeah. Outs- okay. I wouldn't put it above four trails, just distance-wise, like because four trails yeah. double the distance. But terrain-wise and heat and everything, yeah. if it was a 200-miler as opposed to a 100-miler, it would likely be tougher. And it's got really difficult cutoffs as well. It's a, like even though I think it's 50 hours or 45, that because Trung finished like half hour after the cutoff, but still they still gave him in fact yeah he's he's running utmb also a mate henry lekkonen as well is running utmb as well but um but yeah without a doubt it's the toughest uh miler in in asia yeah. and probably one of the toughest milers in the world i think is uh i think it'd be pretty safe to say um yeah. it'll be interesting to see pember uh, um there's a uh, uh, sherpa sherga i forget his name who who won Rinjani 100 miler he's racing UTMB this year as well just be interested to see what kind of time him and Trung do because um it kind of then will look okay it will be out you'll be able to like roughly place where how hard Rinjani actually is um but uh but yeah it's uh yeah it's more of a challenge than a race you can just stay on course this time mate and not not take a yeah take a detour it'll be half of that yeah yeah um good stuff man we'll look good to catch up thanks for checking in enjoy the too, uh, in, enjoy the watching of uh of utmb over the weekend as i'm sure everyone will and uh and yeah we'll catch up in a, in a few weeks good stuff mate talk to you soon cheers tell the truthful story if they ever ask stop the complaining because things ain't that bad